Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Today we continue our special ESG Industry Insights mini-series, coming to you on Wednesdays. In this series of episodes, we're taking a stroll through the neighborhood of different industries in each business sector as they work through implementing and reporting on their ESG priorities. This week, guest host Casey Herman, PwC's U.S. ESG leader, is back to talk about banking and capital markets. I've not heard any bank say that they've gone through and looked at this proposal and feel like they would be ready to implement uh, these types of requirements in, in short order. And, and everybody's kind of looking at this. It's a lot to digest and feeling like there's just a lot of work to do. This is a cross-enterprise type of initiative where you need to engage stakeholders from businesses, your ESG team, your risk team, your finance team. And a lot of folks are in different places in the journey of understanding what's expected, how many capabilities are being developed, etc. Those are our guests, David Challen and Brittany Schmidt, partners in PwC's banking and capital markets practice. I think you'll find their conversation with Casey interesting and insightful. So with that, let's get started. Brittany, David, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm personally really looking to this conversation. Um, I've had a chance to sit in on a couple of meetings with you all and and some of your clients to hear about um, uh, what uh, the banking and capital markets clients are doing around um, climate change risk reporting. And uh, some of the work is really, really Interesting. So I'm I'm super interested to hear um, to go through this conversation and looking forward to, to hearing some of the insights that you all bring. So um, first of all, um, I guess I'll ask both of you. It, it has struck me as I've gotten involved in in the ESG world that the banking and capital markets sector, and especially the large global banks, have really been on the forefront. A uh, very robust voluntary ESG and climate change reporting disclosures. Um, they've been some of the most diligent in making carbon reduction pledges, uh, building those pledges into their strategies and their business operations, and and really uh, walking the walk and and not just talking the talk. Um, what motivated them to be such? Um, you know, such on the forefront of this topic, and why is it so strategically important to that sector in particular? Yeah, Casey, thanks so much. Um, happy to be here with you today. So, I think the reason that banking and capital markets clients are taking such a leadership stance on this topic is because they supply capital to real economy corporates. And so, if you think about the transition that needs to happen to a lower carbon economy, there's a lot of opportunity to reallocate capital uh, to actually address the transition itself. And, and in short, that's, that represents opportunity for banking and capital markets clients. But it also uh, outlines risks that they may face as they're thinking about how to do business in the financial services sector with these uh, corporates. And so, Given that enormous reallocation in capital and the need to overhaul carbon-intensive assets and build new green businesses, expanding access to renewables, etc., 
I think that's why you see the amount of leadership that you do in banking and capital markets. Yeah, and I'll just add on here that, you know, I agree with Brittany that climate's getting a heavy dose of focus by banking regulators and, and other uh, parties as well. But I don't want to lose sight of the social and the governance. You know, I'm seeing many of my banking clients, you know, social topics are also top of mind from a strategy perspective. You know, Casey, it might sound obvious, but banks are financial services companies, which means they're providing services. So they rely heavily on their employees to supply a broad range of services to their customers and, and to support their customers. And banks are not immune from the current market environment around the fight for employee talent. And I'm seeing banks being heavily engaged, prioritizing topics around pay equity, diversity and inclusion. And then when you go beyond the employees, there's always been the roles that banks play in their local community. So along with all the climate-related financing commitments being made to help industries transition to low-carbon economies, there's also significant financing commitments being made around social investments like minority-owned businesses, low-income housing, and expanding access to financial systems. And then when you go beyond the strategy, banking regulators are also focused on topics that you know, we think sit under this social umbrella. You know, I'm thinking of things like protecting customer data, cybersecurity, and regulations like the Community Reinvestment Act. And then just lastly, on governance case, case, you know, it's been long seen as a fundamental bedrock for banks, you know, ensuring the appropriate culture and tone at the top really underpins everything else. That's a great introduction that the sector recognizes this is a real business issue, not a compliance issue. And, um, you know, their business health is dependent upon understanding these risks, understanding and identifying these opportunities to drive um, new business. We we had a conversation with some uh, executives from one of the large global banks. We actually recorded it as a webcast, and it was uh, you know it struck me that uh, one of our participants was the head of their global commercial banking practice, and he and he noted you know our job is to write loans, <laughs> right? Not to to govern climate change, uh, but we see it as an underwriting risk that we had to understand. So. Uh, uh, it, it, and, you know, where the money flows, that's where people's attention flows. So I think that sector, your sector being ahead of the game on this is going to drive a lot of activity across the economy. So if we think about, um, specifically the SEC's proposed, um, disclosure rules on climate change, um, I, I know that it's been a major focus for your clients. Comments from, uh, Interested parties were due at the end of June. There were an enormous number of comments, um, over 14,000 comments, in fact. But to be fair, about uh, 13,000 of those were either form letters or comment letters from just individuals that didn't have a whole lot of meat to them. But there were still over a 1,000 um, individually substantive comment letters. And I know uh, the banking and capital markets industry were active in, in those comments. What what kinds of points did they bring up through their industry groups or through individual comment letters? Yeah, Casey, I think it's a great question. And, and maybe just to even be more specific that we're talking about the SEC's climate disclosure proposal, because actually the SEC has several proposals that are out there that relate to climate, including for the financial services sector, things around um, what's more traditionally used in asset management around the names rule for funds and others. 
So for the climate disclosure rule in particular, right, where the comment letter has closed and and we've started to see what the industry is saying, I'd say that there were a couple of things that stuck out to me, right? I think the first is that the different subsections of the financial services industry, insurance versus the big asset managers versus the large banks, had slightly different takes on what the comments were, right, back to the SEC. So I think that was kind of the first point that was particularly interesting. And in that, they agreed in general with what you saw from the rest of the commenters, that they were looking for additional time to implement some additional safe harbor provisions, the ability to potentially furnish not file. But I think that overall, um, the emphasis point was much deeper on the issues that matter to financial services. So that is the scope three category 15 financed emissions. Um, It is on the scope of what that financed emissions disclosure would cover in terms of their on balance sheet activities. And there was a lot of commentary around the interaction between financial services, prudential regulators who look at their scenario analysis and the way that they manage risk quite closely vis-a-vis the SEC and the disclosure requirements that were there. Um, We saw very large um, trade letters, if you will, so from some of the big groups that represent many of the largest players and mid-sized players right within financial services. Additionally, several large financial institutions chose to send their own comment letters as well um, because they wanted to voice their support overall for the rule. Um, as they've made voluntary commitments out in the market and they are supportive of mandatory disclosure, but wanted to kind of shape the conversation around the form and the substance of the way that the final rule um, is shaping up. David, any thoughts from your side there? Yeah. So maybe just to add on to some of those things you mentioned, Brittany, and maybe starting with the timing, you know, there's two aspects of timing concerns that I'm hearing coming through from from my banking clients. The first is the proposed effective date for the requirements. So many banks are large accelerator filers and under the SEC's climate proposal timeline, you know, that would mean all the requirements would kick in for fiscal year 2023 with the exception of the scope three greenhouse gas emissions, if that's applicable and that a requirement to have a verification done over your scope one and two. So many banks are looking at that 2023 effective date and saying, that's going to be really challenging to meet various aspects of the proposal. And one area of real concern is falling on that climate footnote requirement, You know, the, the piece that's included in the regulation SX. Because it's part of the financial statements, it means it's going to have to be subject to internal controls over financial reporting. So you know, those are the SOX controls. So I'm hearing people looking at that 2023 date and saying, look, if this proposal was made final tomorrow, I already feel like I'm behind in order to be ready for that. And then the second aspect on timing concerns is around looking at these disclosures under the SEC reporting timetable. So thinking about trying to collect this kind of information needed specifically for things like greenhouse gas reporting within a 60-day filing period for the 10K filing is being seen as, you know, being a big leap from where banks are at potentially today to where they would need to be if this was to kind of all move ahead as it's proposed. And then if the scope three requirement in the proposal also sticks, you know, just that type of information needed to complete that finance emissions takes additional time as well. Brittany, you also mentioned about protection. Um, So on that additional protection question, we have seen come through in a number of the banking industry comment letters asking the SEC to allow for the climate information to be furnished rather than filed with the SEC. 
So when information is furnished with the SEC, it's not subject to certain provisions of the Securities Exchange Act. So, so specifically, allowing it to be furnished would allow the information to not be subject to the same liability provisions as it would otherwise be applicable if the information was filed. So I think you can understand that an SEC filer is wanting to get as much protection from potential liability as they can, but that protection to the filers comes at a cost of taking potential protection away from investors. What I found interesting is that two of the largest institutional investors they also advocated for allowing companies to furnish rather than file. And they are coming at it from the lens that they think this will actually promote more robust disclosures uh, by the registrants as the potential liability will be decreased. So I found that angle from investors really interesting. And then lastly, you mentioned materiality. What's interesting about the proposal is that there are different materiality lenses being applied to different aspects of the proposal. So amongst these, there are two themes that are coming through loud and clear in the banking industry. The first is on that climate footnote, the Regulation SX piece, which I mentioned earlier. And I think everyone has heard by now that 1% threshold and the operational concerns that go along with that. And I don't think that's a banking industry-specific concern. That appears to be a consistent concern across many industries. The second theme, which I think is more banking-specific, or to be fair, more financial services-specific generally, is the proposed threshold of when a registrant would have to include their Scope 3 emissions. So there are two ways the proposed rules would require a Scope 3 reporting. One is if the company has set a reduction target or a goal that includes Scope 3 emissions. But the other way is if the total Scope 3 emissions are material. And so while the proposed rules themselves do not include a quantitative threshold, what is included in the discussion section is the SEC makes references to how some companies look to whether Scope 3 makes up 40% or more of your total emissions to determine whether Scope 3 is material. So if we were to use that lens of what percentage of Scope 3 is of your total emissions, it becomes really difficult for banks and financial services to argue that Scope 3 is not material. And that's mostly because their physical footprint that generates the scope one and scope two is just really small compared to the total value chain concept, specifically category 15 financed emissions. So, you know, Brittany and Casey, those are aspects of the proposal that I'm hearing is getting a lot of buzz amongst the banking clients. You two just gave us a whole lot to unpack there. So just backing up a bit, perhaps um, in, in summary, what the rule requires in my mind, is sort of three different disclosures. Um, you mentioned the footnote disclosure that talks about the historical impacts to the financial statements from climate change risk and specifically severe weather events. Um, and that would be subject to internal controls over financial reporting and the auditor's, um, the auditor's um, opinion because it's within the audited financial statements. So that's one item. The second item, and, and we spent a lot of time talking about it, is um, scope one and two emissions um, for all periods presented, um, as well as scope three emissions um, to the extent that they are material or, or the registrant has set a goal and published a goal that include those scope three emissions. Um, and that would ultimately be subject to a third-party assurance requirement, not necessarily your auditing firm, but but an independent third-party assurance. And then there will be a section within the um, 10K, but outside of the footnotes, outside of the financial statements, with um, 
uh, TCFD type disclosures around climate risk um, on the short term, medium term, and and long term um, perspective timeframes, uh, goals the companies may have set, risks, and how the company and the board governs and monitors those risks. So that that's at a at a very high level what the uh, proposal requires. And I think what you said is. Um, Generally, the bank and capital market sector was supportive, but with a number of operational changes to make it a more functional and relevant and efficient disclosure. Um, maybe we can dig in a little bit to each of those a bit. So um, in terms of scope one and two disclosures, uh, what are you seeing in terms of the difficulties your clients are, are having in and their ability to actually get good estimates of those amounts. I, I know the timing's going to be an issue, but just getting access to the data, do, they, do you feel pretty good about their ability to comply with that? Yeah, Casey. So maybe just starting big picture, you know, the banking industry, they generally have a lot of a smaller scope one and scope two footprint when you compare them to other industries. And that's just due to the nature of their operations. You know, they're Scope one and their scope two is coming from their, their real estate footprint, which will be things like their offices and their, in their branches. So, you know, the main item I've seen impacting the banking industry on the SEC proposal is, as it relates to scope one and two, is really around the operational boundary differences between the GHG protocol versus the approach that the SEC is taking, which is to follow the financial reporting consolidation concepts. And this specifically comes into play for equity method investments. And unlike many other industries, banks, and particularly larger banks, they have a number of investments that meet the equity method of accounting for financial reporting. And banks that have not been reporting those traditionally in their scope one and scope two, those have been typically viewed as investments under the scope three category 15. So, it's, that's one of the operational challenges that the proposal adds, and it may decrease comparability for U.S. reporting versus those that are reporting under the GHG report uh, proposal in other jurisdictions if they're not taking the SEC's approach. You know, I don't think the additional scope one and scope two coming from equity investments are expected to be overly large compared to the total greenhouse gas emissions reported, but you know, it's still just the operational exercise of trying to see if you can even get that information uh, from your investees, and if not, coming up with a, an ability or method to estimate those. And then on the move to reasonable assurance, you know, I know a number of banking industry letters in response to the proposal question that need for reasonable assurance and whether the level of assurance is really needed for investors. Of course, as a CPA and, and being in the assurance profession, I think there is definitely value to investors and, and honestly to management as well in providing reasonable assurance and improvements to the reporting process. That usually comes along with that when you're moving towards reasonable assurance. Yeah, and David, I think the only other thing I'd add on behind that for scope one and two is that there are um, additional disaggregation requirements um, into more granular um, allocations of the different greenhouse gas types than what folks had traditionally been doing in their reporting. So totally agree with all the points that you've raised, but that's something that's come up with my clients. And the other is just really digging into the data quality itself. Um, there's a provision in the rule that asks about 
um, the data quality standards of, let's say, any third-party providers that you might be leveraging for some of this information or for your sourcing um, and kind of controls over the usage of the information. And so the other focus area for our clients is trying to dig into that data quality a bit more deeply and with that reasonable assurance lens in mind, um, which raises the level of expectation around the quality. Yeah, it would certainly add to the trust and the trustworthiness of that data, which is the goal of that rule. And it will be interesting because I, I think across many industries, those similar questions were raised um, about the suitability for reasonable assurance. It'll be interesting to see where the SEC lands when they issue a final rule, which, by the way, we understand is still expected to be in the fall of 2022 or potentially before midterm elections, although the SEC clearly has a lot of work to do to consider uh, the, the avalanche of comments that they got. So maybe turning to scope three, it, it occurs to me that there are probably multiple categories of scope three emissions that could be material within the sector, um, you know, for instance, purchase goods and services or business travel. But um, it, it, it also seems like the big kahuna there is going to be financed emissions. Um, I know you're both working with a number of, of banks and other asset managers as they think about how can we even get a good estimate of, of these financed emissions. Um, how do we set up the systems and the technologies and the processes to go through that process? There, there is an extra year built into the into the proposed rules before scope three emissions are required to be disclosed, and they would also be subject to a safe harbor provision. So the registrants would uh, have added legal protection over those disclosures. But if you guys could tell me a little bit about how your clients are feeling about their ability to actually estimate them, and there probably is some you know, segmentation there between the very large banks that may have been working on this for a while and some of the smaller banks. Um, so I'm interested in your thoughts on on uh, viability and feasibility of scope three disclosures. Yeah, that's a great question, Casey. I'll go ahead and start and then maybe David, you can jump in. So I think maybe just zooming out in terms of scope three, the first thing that's worth talking through is just the difficulty in determining exactly what you would put in that scope three disclosure. So as David outlined, you have the litmus test of have I made a public commitment that pertains to scope three and are scope three emissions deemed to be in aggregate, quote unquote, material as compared to my overall emissions footprint, right? And that's the the test that tells you whether or not scope three comes into play. I think if we think at, about category 15 by itself, the financed emissions topic, because that's really where the emphasis is, the next question that comes into play is how much of my balance sheet from a bank perspective am I going to include in the coverage? And there's a lot of challenges there in terms of there even being industry agreed upon calculation approaches for all of the different asset classes that are out there for a bank. So for example, um, an asset class that many of the largest GSIBs have already issued reports around their financed emissions is for corporate loans, in particular for interim targets to certain sectors within corporate lending. So automotive, energy, power, et cetera. And so for that piece of it, I think the question is, is that sufficient or do I need to expand beyond that and cover my full corporate lending book, right, across all sectors? 
and or do I need to also include additional asset classes that that already have calculation approaches that are agreed upon, like CRE and mortgage and auto loans, etc.? So that's the question that our clients are, are uh, wrestling with right now. And I do think that even for the largest institutions, they have not been publicly disclosing on that full inventory of what is available from a calculation approach perspective. David, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, a lot of that on the head, Brittany, right? The challenge is there's, I'm not aware of anyone that's worked through a methodology to encompass every type of investment that at least large banks have. And, and some, some, some examples, right? Something as simple as credit card lending is, is, is an example where there hasn't been an industry agreed upon methodology publicly made available under, under an existing framework. So, you know, again, everyone knows that and there's um, task force and industry groups that are working through uh, those developments, but, you know, again, bumping that up against the timeline as proposed with the SEC proposal, even with the one year delay uh, for the scope three versus the other scopes is going to put a lot of pressure on, on those banks that have, portfolios where they might have large types of those investments to develop those. And the other other aspect is then off-balance sheet, meaning this concept of facilitated emissions. So, if you, again, if you think about the value chain concepts under the greenhouse gas protocol, this concept of facilitated financed emissions, whether that's through activities like M&A or debt offerings, equity raisings, and expanding beyond that to really where do you start drawing the line in the whole ecosystem of the capital markets, right? The role that broker dealers play, the role that uh, services play, et cetera. So how do you start drawing boundaries around the concept of what's a facilitated emission? And I think those are just questions that are currently out there, but again, not, not the clear answers. The other uh, factor that's coming into play, Casey, back to your original question about the one year, is the fact that some of the counterparties for the financial services organizations are SEC registrants, but many of them are not. They are private um, and or they are small. And so um, while the phase-in is helpful for those who will start reporting, uh, large financial services organizations and even, you know, even I would say our medium and small size financial services organizations who do really community-based lending have a lot of work to do to work with um, their stakeholders to gather this information that may not be solved by um, the mandatory disclosure requirement that's out there for SEC registrants. And for many of these folks, the topic itself is brand new. And so there's a, a education there's a level setting, there's an engagement model, there's a lot of work that has to go into helping them understand why they need to disclose this information and to helping them provide it to the financial services organization such that their scope three could be more complete. I think the two of you just gave me a headache with all of the complexities you described. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not an FS partner. I typically work in the industrial and energy sectors and and the level of complexity that you and your clients are dealing with in some of these disclosures is, uh, is, is just tremendous. And it highlights maybe one of the comments we made in our comment letter that there's going to have to be a lot of interpretive guidance put out around these rules. 
and having some sort of central body that issues that interpretive guidance, whether it's on an industry basis or an overall economy basis, will be really helpful. So you guys aren't, uh, you're not old enough to remember the implementation of uh, derivative accounting, but we had the derivatives implementation group, the DIG, that was very helpful. And then we had similar um, organizations around Sarbanes-Oxley implementation, 404, and, and even revenue and lease accounting. So I I think some structure like that will be very helpful because it's, it's just not going to be helpful if different companies within a sector come to different conclusions or different sectors within the economy come to different conclusions. So um, I, I think an implementation group and, and body would be really helpful. And just to react to that, Casey, I think that's right to the point of to ensure comparability, even within the industry, right? But there's just so many, my words, policy elections, if you will, that will need to be made in order to actually operationalize a, a proposal like this. And what I think one of the challenges along with that, even if you have these industry groups coming together, is that it could potentially continue to shift the goalposts around what interpretations are made. And so as companies are looking around, you know, how do I get ahead of this? How do I start thinking through these questions and, and working through these? You know, whatever answers you reach today might then need to be altered or changed if there's additional guidance that comes out either through some formal uh, task force or some group set up like a dig if that was to be established or if just naturally through the evolution of discussions with informal industry groups or, or just discussions with your auditors and as we all have to kind of start taking views and positions on, on these various aspects, again, there could be you know, a shift in, in how people are interpreting and viewing these aspects, which just adds another layer of complexity to work through all this within a condensed timeframe. So let's shift. We, we spent a lot of time talking about um, historical information, whether it's emissions, scope one, two, or three, as well as the footnote disclosure. But a big part of the proposed climate change rules is about forward-looking information as well as how companies manage those risk factors, how boards of directors manage those risk factors. So a big part of this rule is is what I kind of consider TCFD-style disclosures uh, looking forward about um, asset risk, transition risk, how they're being managed, um, goals that may have been set and what the plans are to meet those goals as well as what it may cost to get to those goals. Um, what are you all hearing um, from your clients about preparing those disclosures? I know a lot of banks are already uh, voluntarily making TCFD disclosures, but they may not include all these components. So what is the level of uh, preparedness around those disclosures? Yeah, I think absolutely. This is an area of the TCFD-like components where financial services organizations are a lot more comfortable and voiced a lot more support. Um, and that's because the understanding of risk and its impact to overall strategy is a fundamental part of how financial services organizations think about their day-to-day -day business models. Um, and so there's a comfort in that. I would say there are some pieces to this, though, that are very difficult to incorporate. So the first would be, if you think about a globally diversified financial services organization, climate, both physical and transition risk, are drivers of all of their existing risk stripes. So 
the way they think about credit risk and market risk and investment risk and reputational risk and so on and so forth. And the permutations for each risk stripe as you apply it to each business and to each asset class are really, really complicated. They need to do that across the lines of defense, and they need to get to the point where climate is a lens that's being baked into how they manage that risk day in and day out. And so if you think about the description of that risk management within the SEC disclosure, what most of our clients are saying is, we think that in terms of the disclosure to the SEC itself, we'll be able to do that. The question is more, what will our prudential supervisors think about the quality of our risk management program, our ability to articulate how climate impacts our strategy and our business outlook, and how well we're using things like our overarching governance to manage that and scenario analysis to put quantitative numbers to the risk that we're assessing. And so, again, unique to this sector, from a scenario analysis perspective, these clients are used to the process of running scenario analysis projections of what losses might look like, what the balance sheet might look like, et cetera. But typically, in the past, that's been either a nine-quarter forecasting horizon or current expected credit loss, which is a lifetime loss type of view. It has not been your short medium, and long-term view from a climate sense. And so there's a timeline mismatch in the way that they're thinking about risk and incorporating that. And so now they're needing to factor in additional measurement um, and turn things that are uh, filled with lots of assumptions, right? Our view of what's going to happen in the world over a 30-year time horizon into financial impacts. And so they're challenged, right, to go through that process It also provides a lot of information, very granular, typically confidential supervisory information. So if you think about something like the capital stress testing regime that banks typically undergo, that is not usually information that is made publicly available at this level of granularity or detail. And so that's another concern I think that clients are working through. But for the most part, they agree that the underlying capabilities need to be there and that these are the actions that need to be taken. And we already see a lot of activity around that to really just continue to build out those programs. Yeah, And just to add to that, Brittany, what I find interesting about these TCFD-like disclosures, in my mind, you're starting to now get a difference between a compliance risk to comply with the SEC rule versus other risks like regulatory or reputational risk of the things you're, you're touching on. So what I mean by that is, right, the SEC proposal talks about, you know, disclose your governance. And it's more it's just like wherever you're at right now, do you have a climate expert on the board or not? Do you, you have any groups, management committees that that meet on climate? So it's really just, you know, in order to meet that disclosure requirement, it's not that the banks have to do anything per se. They just, you know, are required to disclose the state of affairs. And the same thing for uh, risk management as it relates to scenario analysis. Are you doing a climate scenario analysis or not? So to comply with the SEC requirement, again, you just got to disclose where you're at. Now, if you're disclosing you're not doing anything, that might comply with the SEC rule, but that opens up the things you're talking about. Like, does that look bad from a reputational risk if I'm saying I'm not doing anything, but my peers all are? Does it open me up to regulatory risk? Because again, I'm saying I'm not doing much, 
but my regulators are expecting me to do more. And so that's what I find really fascinating also about these aspects of another, another dynamic as people are digesting this rule to know, hey, if this is going to be out in the public domain, I'm not just worried about complying with the rule, but how is that going to now look to my various stakeholders when I start to put this into a public disclosure? So lots to do in that area as, as well. I guess as we start to finish up with all of these different uh, interpretations, challenges, information needs that the sector's facing, what are you seeing our clients doing? How are they getting ready today in anticipation of potentially new rules coming out in the fall that could go effective as soon as the 2024 10K, may, maybe a year later or, or more, but um, the proposed rule would be 2023 data in the 2024 10K. Yeah, so I think we're seeing clients take really three steps. The first is that they're digesting what the rule says and sorting through all of these open complexities around interpretive issues and design choices that they might want to make about the content that they would put into the narrative in light of everything that David just outlined. So that's kind of step one for them. The second, I would say, is that they are getting their internal teams organized. There's This is a cross-enterprise type of initiative where you need to engage stakeholders from businesses, your ESG team, your risk team, your finance team. And a lot of folks are in different places in the journey of understanding what's expected, how many capabilities are being developed, etc. So there's a lot of internal roles and responsibilities, rationalization and level setting of expectations. And then last, I'd say they're focused on controlling what they know is going to matter now. So in terms of capability builds, there are certain areas in this rule that regardless of what happens with the SEC, there are there is a perceived to be a need to make sure that those capabilities exist within the organization. And so there's sort of no regret moves, if you will, to make sure that those capabilities are there and to start building towards that because they see it as a multi-year journey. David, what are you seeing from your clients? I, Brittany, I'm seeing a lot of the same things. And I think, you know, just to again zoom out, the the banking industry and likely financial services generally, you know, where people are at today is a very broad spectrum when you're even just talking about SEC registrants. And so, as you mentioned, you know, in terms of well, what are your next steps now, given the current landscape, really depends on well, what your current starting point is. You know, there are some banks that have been doing voluntary reporting uh, including TCFD reporting and other voluntary reports for a number of years now. And so they're likely further along this journey than those that have not been doing any of those types of voluntary reports or have not been calculating their various scope one, scope two emissions. So again, you know, I've not heard any bank say that they've gone through and looked at this proposal and feel like they would be ready to implement uh, these types of requirements in, in short order. And, and everybody's kind of looking at this. It's a lot to digest and feeling like there's just a lot of work to do. But really coming back to, you know, where are you at today? Where are those no regret bets you mentioned? And, and at least having a plan in place such that when the proposal, if, you know, once it does move ahead and it's finalized, you're not being caught flat-footed, that you feel like at least you know what your next steps look like and, and have plotted out that level of effort and, and what that timeline looks like in order to comply. So at the very least, have a work plan, but probably more importantly, get to work on the plan. 
and understanding the governance structure of a project team and who's going to be responsible for what and where your current gaps are are the the most logical no regret starting points um so this has been a great discussion i i guess i'd just ask each of you any final comments you want to make for our listeners and and i also just want to tell you that when the final rule does come out i'd love to get back on another podcast with you all and understand okay, here's what the SEC has, has ultimately issued and, and how are your clients thinking about it? So final, final thoughts? I guess the final thought from my side, Casey, is that the underlying capabilities that are required to put together the information that's being asked for um, within the SEC's proposal, that that's not going away. That's a large industry-wide focus and it's being driven by stakeholders, regulators, globally. And so for that reason, there's enough work to do just to get ready against those expectations, regardless of what happens with the mandatory disclosure and the rule itself. So my takeaway would be focus on the capabilities, because that part is a trend and it's continuing to press forward. Yeah, Brittany, and I would just add on to that, that, you know, I... A proposal like this, if it sticks, is going to require cross-functional coordination across the organization. This is not an area that SEC reporting can go on its own on. You're going to need input from various aspects across the business, including risk management, potentially frontline, internal audit, uh, you know, your traditional controllership functions, etc. So I think at least raising awareness and getting everybody made aware that this is potentially coming and, 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 and talking about uh, what the plan is. Um, I don't think that can start soon enough. I think it's going to require a village to make, uh, to make a proposal like this, uh, to comply with a proposal like this. David, great advice. Thanks to, to you and Brittany for this terrific conversation. I look forward to reconnecting. Thank you, Casey. Thanks, Casey. That's our show for today. And just a reminder that our Thursday series is on hiatus until after Labor Day. But don't worry, next week we'll be back with a brand new toolkit series talking about impairment, as well as continuing our ESG series. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.